0: Hello, and welcome to the first Music Collaborative Wide Meeting for 2023. I'm Kushid Ghani, and it's a great pleasure for me to introduce this exciting session that we have today. What is the state of music at the moment? And you can see here that right now we have 46 practices in Michigan, more than 260 urologists are part of the collaborative, and our pool of patient advocates are growing. Today, we're going to hear from different patient advocates in all of our three programs, and they provide a vital voice for us as we look to improve care. And the data that we collect that is done in each practice by the data abstractors that's so vital to our efforts is at the heart of what we can do today. And you'll see that we cannot inform change or make uh, improvements in patient care without that data collection. We're nearly at 100,000 cases for prostate cancer, more than 40,000 cases for kidney stone procedures and more than 5,000 small renal mass cases. An exciting development that's been happening in MUSIC is the expansion of membership to select groups outside Michigan. We welcomed our first site with UNC, and now we have other sites such as University of Florida, University of Kentucky and Mount Sinai in discussions to join us. But what I can say, with good news is that we now welcome our second official outside Michigan site at Montfiore, New York. Welcome to music. Our clinical champion at that site is Dr. Cara Watts. Many of you met her when she was here for the in-person collaborative meeting last June. And I also wanna take a moment to thank the chairman of that department, Dr. Schoenberg, who's been able to support these efforts and allow their group to join music. And we're really excited to welcome them and learn from them and see what contributions they have uh, to make us a better quality group. And it's regarding our true purpose as a quality organization that uh, at the coordinating center, we've been asking ourselves, what is the true purpose of the music organization? And one thing that we realized that set us apart from other clinical registries is that we are a community. We're a community that gathers as we are today. We gather in person. We are a community that is focused on improving patients' lives. And we do that through partnership, through the partnership with Blue Cross Blue Shield of Michigan and through the partnership with all of you who provide your effort and time in helping us And what is it that we want? We want to inspire high quality care. At the end of today's session, we hope we have achieved that. We hope we've inspired you to do better for your patients. We would want you to provide the same quality cares as you would expect for yourself or members of your family. And we do this through data-driven best practices, education and innovation. And I hope you'll see all of that in our talks today. Some updates uh, on the MUSIC program. We've had some good news in terms of getting a large uh, $3 million grant from the Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Institute to fund uh, a study where we'll be looking at stent omission versus stent placement after urethroscopy. Around 12 uh, MUSIC sites are going to take part in this, as well as four outdoor sites. And we hope to begin the first patient to be enrolled by June. Other developments is that we've uh, applied for an industry grant to support a new initiative around uh, advanced prostate cancer with the goal to increase the use of guideline concordant therapy for men with advanced prostate cancer. And we look forward to seeing um, how that application um, uh, is received. A really cool thing that the kidney team has done recently is the peer video review for robotic partial nephrectomy. 13 surgeons from uh, from Music have submitted uh, more than 30 videos, and this is uh, around 80 hours of unedited robotic partial nephrectomy. And we've been fortunate to have 24 surgeon peer reviewers look at these clips in a de-identified manner and score them for technical skill. You'll recall we did this many years ago for robotic prostatectomy and now we're doing this for robotic partial nephrectomy and we're the first group to, to do this. So we're gonna learn over the next few months how our surgeons uh, rate technical skill and how we can use this to improve the overall technical quality of this procedure with the ultimate aim to improve outcomes for patients. So thank you to all our submitters and reviewers for taking part in this, and I'm sure we're gonna hear more updates on this at our next meeting in June. MUSIC has had multiple publications over the last few months, but two that I'm going to highlight today is this paper on active surveillance uh, from Roshan Podell and the prostate team that was published in Journal of Urology. And then in the Journal of Endourology, Dr. uh, John Michael DiBianco, published this paper on how we in music are going to use a surgical decision aid for patients to decide between shockwave lithotripsy or uretroscopy, and that the focus of the rock section will be on this topic. And I should take a moment to note that this, this paper, when it was submitted to the Endourology Society, was awarded a prize for its work. So I hope uh, you'll stay tuned to listen to Dr. Dow and Dr. DiBianco when they speak about this later on today. I hope we can see many of you at this year's AUA not too far away from us in Chicago. Uh, At the AUA, we have 22 music presentations that are seven podium and 15 posters. And that uh, includes around 27 music urologists from across the spectrum here of all our practices, both our large uh, community and academic practices. So thank you for for all your um, efforts there to have a good showing at the AUA, and we hope to see you at our AUA reception, which is always on a Saturday uh, evening. And then another exciting news related to the AUA is that we uh, uh, were notified that Our patient advocate who put in a story around their perspectives on small renal mass and the uh, uh, surveillance roadmap from the kidney team was selected as one of the few patient voices to be presented at the AUA. And this is a huge honor for the music team. Uh, And I'm pleased that James Humphreys, our kidney advocate, will be involved in today's session with the kidney team as they discuss active surveillance of the small renal mass. So what do we have lined up for us today? We have a talks from the kidney team focusing on s- surveillance of the renal mass. From prostate, we're going to have a deep dive on functional recovery after prostatectomy. And from the ROCS team, we're going to learn about how we choose uretroscopy or shockwave lithotripsy and the decision-making around that. So shortly, we'll hear from the kidney team, and we'll be um having presentations from Dr. Rogers and Dr. Lane, who will be joined by uh, Dr. Jaffrey from Comprehensive Urology and our patient advocate, James Humphreys and his wife, Laura Humphreys. Following that, our next session will be from the prostate team and it will focus on patient reported outcomes after radical prostatectomy. We've been collecting pros for radical prostatectomy in music for many, many years. And we have one of the largest collection of uh, data when it comes to this in the world. And while we focused on efforts to try and improve urinary continence and sexual function outcomes for surgeons using this data as a feedback mechanism, we're starting to ask ourselves more deeper fundamental questions on how can we use the patient reported outcomes for the benefits of of the patient itself. And we, in this session, are going to hear from Dr. Andrew Crum from the Learning Health Science Department at the University of Michigan, where he's going to be looking at this data set and start to examine it in a different way where we can start to understand patterns of recovery, what we call functional uh, trajectories of recovery, using the data and see if in the future we can inform patients around um, aspects of their uh, recovery and how to intervene maybe in some patients earlier. This is novel work and will be uh, led by this session by Dr. Arvin George from the uh, Music Prostate team and we're fortunate to have afterwards a panel discussion including Dr. Ginsberg and Dr. Samerjian also leads of the uh, Prostate Program in Music uh, along with our patient advocate Jose Rebello and this uh, session is an a great example of how music is at the forefront of innovation as we look at a new way of defining patient-reported outcomes. So I'm really excited about that, that session. And then we'll close with our session on uretroscopy versus shockwave lithotripsy for renal stones, where we will focus on educating the patient around how to make the right choice for them. And Dr. Dow and Dr. DiBianco will take us through this. And we are fortunate to be joined on the panel by Dr. Kachru from Henry Ford Health and Dr. Wensler from Comprehensive Urology. And then our patient advocate, Heather Worcester who will provide her perspective on this. And again, this is a great example of how music is using education to advance patient care. So I hope I've been able to show to you that music as a team, we are a community that partners to improve patients' lives by inspiring high quality care through data-driven best practices, education, and innovation. And I'm really excited about the well, about the meeting today. I'm really looking forward to all the content. Our first speaker is going to be Dr. Brian Lane from the kidney team. So I'm going to hand it over to Brian. Brian, over to you. Thank you.
1: Thanks, Kershid. Uh We look forward uh, to sharing with the group uh, further information about durability of surveillance as a management approach for T1 renal masses. So our group has been working now about five years. Uh, we've got 20 practices engaged. We've got over 4,700 patients within uh, the music kidney registry. Uh, and we really feel like we've hit the ground running. Um, as most of you know, we've spent some time looking at active surveillance and trying to figure out when is it appropriate. Uh, and many of you, are music urologists, were participants in uh, this virtual uh, Delphi process that we did. Uh, We had three rounds, and it was an iterative process with greater than 120 scenarios. And we really went in depth to try to figure out what uh, should be the initial evaluation for patients, who are the patients we should be selecting for surveillance, and then what type of testing should they undergo. Uh, Summary of our findings were that really a large number of patients should be considered for surveillance. That includes both all patients. Uh, who have tumors greater than three centimeters, and some that have larger tumors, and all patients with a short life expectancy, one year or less, and some patients with longer life expectancies. So those are some pretty broad buckets. With respect to initial evaluation, upfront get some good high-quality axial imaging, get chest imaging when the tumor is greater than three centimeters, and always do renal functional assessment uh, with both GFR and proteinuria, And as follow-up, either axial imaging or ultrasound, and Craig will review some of this uh, further uh, in the second part of this talk, and repeat chest imaging uh, what, for tumors greater than 5 centimeters. We've developed resources. Hopefully, uh, most of you have these in your hands and are using them in your clinics. Um, the point of these is to help patients work through both uh, the evaluation side Uh, hey, is it appropriate for you uh, to consider surveillance Uh, and then engage in shared decision making, but also with a roadmap to help work through what does a surveillance plan look like. Recently and and new, uh, we want to announce that we've got patient-facing roadmaps. These are now available. If you'd like hard copies, let us know. Um, They're available on the website. uh, As as we speak, and you can see the QR codes here. There's both a trifold uh, and an eight-page uh, document with uh, language that should be uh, more uh, suitable for our patients to review uh, after their clinic visit uh, with you and uh, hopefully help uh, them in their process. So what my job uh, leading us off is to sur- uh, summarize where we stand as a collaborative. So you've seen a similar slide before, uh, which is that the rate of surveillance across the collaborative is 47%. You can see our larger groups uh, all kind of similar in this regard, but there's still some variability with some groups having higher and lower rates. And who are the patients who are on surveillance? Well, based on age, you can see that 66% of patients over 70 are on surveillance compared with only 31% of those under 60. And again, the smaller masses are uh, primarily being targeted, 72% of those less than 2 centimeters versus a quarter of those above 4 centimeters. And it is more common to use surveillance for complex cystic and indeterminate masses, uh, which each represent about 10% of the group, but uh, solid renal masses are still there at 41% across the collaborative. So how do our surveillance rates in music compare? Well, these are the published rates of surveillance for T1A renal masses by multiple other groups. Uh, and you can see we're by far the highest. Um, I would like to make the caveat that many of the prior series, uh, are have somewhat different, uh, denominators. So they're limited to pathologically proven RCC. So if a patient came into clinic, With a small renal mass and never underwent a biopsy, these SEER Medicare would never have identified them. Similarly, uh, there's other series that are primarily surgical series, so it's always been interesting to to wonder where did they get their their surveillance cohort. So I think we have a methodology that helps us systematically um, capture whether a patient's having intervention or not, because we start at the clinic visit, and hence you see these very high rates Um, For T1A, again, our most recent data would say 54%, uh, and 25% for T1B. So these are very high, and I think it's something that we should uh, be proud of within uh, MUSIC. So let's talk about some concerns uh, that may arise uh, as we talk about surveillance for a large number of patients. One, what do we know about the durability of surveillance? So here's a case, for example, a 59-year-old gentleman, he's got a solitary kidney because he had a left-open nephrectomy for kidney cancer 11 years prior, uh, and he represents with two masses, two and a half and 1.1 centimeters. Uh, but at this point in life, uh, he's, got, um, he's developed some multiple uh, medical comorbidities. Uh, he's got some uh, CHF, he's got uh, type 2 diabetes with nephropathy, hypertension. He's obese, uh, and he's proteinuric uh, on an examination of his urine studies. So when we enter him into the uh, music kidney uh, life expectancy calculator, you can see the QR code here, um, which really doesn't require too much uh, on your part, just age, gender, and then those uh, five um, comorbidities. Uh, along with the tumor size, what you'll see is that his five-year survival is only 81%. If he didn't have CHF and didn't have his chronic kidney disease, uh, then his survival would have been higher at 91%. But I think these are important things to consider when we're discussing with patients. So he was placed on surveillance, uh, and what happened? Well, his tumors grew some. So over a seven-year period, his two and a half centimeter tumor grew to 4.4 centimeters. His 1.1 centimeter grew to 2.8 centimeters, and he developed a new 1.3 centimeter mass. But he didn't develop metastases or uh, signs or symptoms from these. And so I think this, again, is a success of surveillance, especially if we consider that his CKD progressed uh, while he was on surveillance. He also developed a secondary malignancy, uh, a small cell carcinoma of the lung, which did metastasize. Uh, and ended his life nearly seven years after we began surveilling uh, these tumors. So I'd call it success story number one. Here's case number two for those uh, who may wonder uh, about surveillance for larger tumors. So uh, this is a 79-year-old gentleman. uh, Renal mass uh, was 6.3 centimeters, pretty significant in size. uh, And the decision was made that he should undergo a renal mass biopsy uh, and that if he were to have a significant uh, renal cell carcinoma, maybe he would undergo a nephrectomy. But if not, the plan would be surveillance. And his biopsy showed oncocytic neoplasm favoring oncocytoma. Uh, and so he was placed on surveillance and has been uh, followed successfully for four and a half years at this point without any evidence of tumor progression. And a third case. Um, is a 56-year-old male uh, with coronary artery disease. Uh, He was stented and placed on aspirin and Plavix, and in his follow-up testing, was found to have a two-centimeter renal mass. So he underwent a left robotic partial nephrectomy. Uh, We're including this case to show that there's really no free lunch. Uh, Even the simple partial nephrectomies can have problems. So when he resumed his Plavix a week post-op, he had a rather significant uh, retroperitoneal bleed. He was admitted to the hospital, he was resuscitated, he had IR embolize his bleed and and transfuse him. Uh, And so there really are downsides to intervening, um, even in cases that might seem straightforward. So uh, what have we learned uh, through the registry uh, about kidney surgery in the state of Michigan? The readmission rate's about 3.4% overall. Uh, Even for the low-complexity tumors, it's about 2.8% with partial nephrectomy uh, and up to about uh, 5% for higher-complexity tumors. Uh, And these readmissions uh, are costly to the health system. So through uh, collaboration with the Michigan Value Collaborative, uh, we've learned that the average cost is over $15,000 per year. uh, And uh, in total, uh, for readmissions after kidney surgery, it's over $600,000 a year. So if we can reduce uh, these complications, uh, there's clearly some benefit in that regard. So to summarize, what are the benefits of surveillance? One uh, is you can avoid the morbidity associated with major surgery. Two, you can avoid the loss of kidney function from intervention. And we've defined a substantial drop in GFR as one that is two less than 45 and by greater than 45%. And you can see while that's rare in patients with normal renal function undergoing partial nephrectomy, it's quite substantial for patients who are having radical nephrectomy. Three, you can avoid the cost to the patient, both of the uh, incident procedure and any postoperative complications afterwards. Fourth, there's the avoidance of surgery for benign disease which occurs in about 5,000 patients per year in this country. And finally, the risk of metastases in these patients is very low, particularly for those less than three centimeters, it's less than 5%. And if we really examine the literature, the cancer-specific survival for surveillance is very high and comparable to intervention groups in properly selected patients. So good job, music, so far. Uh, We really uh, seem to be uh, using surveillance well. Um, And with that, I'll turn it over to the patient uh, who was initiated on uh, a plan for active surveillance.
2: Hello, I would thank Dr. Lane for that introduction. And um, as a patient who had a CT scan that had a mass on it, I was trying to gather information uh, from the internet uh, to see what specifically... Um, the treatments were. Fortunately, I had an early appointment with my urologist um, that he explained in detail the complexity and the treatment options that I could choose from or, or, or had as options. And at that time, I was lucky enough to, he shared a document called the Music um, Roadmap, which also reinforced um, the discussions that we had in our first appointment the treatments you know uh, the size the complexity, and what made it very valuable is that in that document I got to take it home and and that kind of reinforced my thinking in terms of what kind of treatment I wanted to proceed in this um, in, in this cancer so um And it also opened up pathways too at home to discuss this with your family and your recovery. And just to make sure that you're kind of in the best shape you can be to in order to, if you choose surgery, to have that surgery. So I feel very fortunate to have that roadmap. And it did, uh, you know, that's the first confidence builder. That first initial appointment is where you start to build that confidence. So um, I found it very informative and it really helped um, explain things to my family, what my options were and how I was going to proceed with um, if I needed surgery, which I did eventually need surgery. I was under surveillance for some time, but I did have a partial moprectomy and I was in really very good shape for that. I tried to do things um, to make myself better during that surveillance period. So um, I would like to introduce Dr. Rogers now, um, and thank you very much.
1: Thank
3: you, Mr. Humphreys, for giving us your perspective as a patient. Now I'm gonna go into some newer data from Music that talks about the durability and appropriateness of active surveillance. Um, so first, um, going into our patients that are on surveillance, Um, If we look at our patients, most of these are patients who have solid tumors, and they have smaller tumors, either less than two centimeters or two to four centimeters with a median age of 69 years. And if we look at rates at years one, year two, and year three for people who are followed on surveillance, Um, What I want to focus on is the blue color, which is the rate of patients that are going on to delayed intervention. So they come off surveillance. And then in the red, these are patients that um, were planned to get imaging, but have not had imaging. So those are two areas to focus on. One is that there are patients that over time, as they're followed, will go on to get treatment. Um, And I'll go more into this later. But I also want to focus on there are some patients, there's a quality improvement opportunity here, and that there are some patients that are not getting imaging over time. So we'll do a deeper dive into both of these. Um, first, the about the imaging that's not done. So if we look at time to first imaging, and what we this is essentially going to say uh, people who had imaging within a year and then people who had imaging the second year. So, with imaging in a year on the left, those are people that had it within a year, and the different shades of green would represent lighter shade is lighter surveillance, darker shade means a tighter surveillance. But bottom line, they're getting the, the imaging within a year, but 22% are not. And then, uh, And then those who got first imaging, but then do they get their second round of imaging within two years? And we added a buffer of a month just in case you set your epic order or whatever for a year exactly, that it still captures those patients that might have gotten it a little later. But bottom line, there's still a large proportion, 36% that that did not have imaging. So um, opportunity for improvement. And then what types of imaging are done when it is done? So you see here uh, over 90% or about 90% of the time when an imaging is done, it's either a CT scan or an ultrasound. So that's the combination of the blue for CT uh, or sorry, CT or MRI. So axial imaging, which would be blue for CT, orange for MRI. Um, And that fits NCCN guidelines of where, and then green would be ultrasound. So, um, you know, Our guidelines do say that uh, an ultrasound is an appropriate option, uh, at least annually, especially after the initial ultrasound or after the initial round of imaging. So for the second and third round, we do see an increasing use of of ultrasound being used. So, and this may be an opportunity for even more use of ultrasound uh, with subsequent rounds of imaging. Um, So now the durability, the transition to treatment, So on the left, these Kaplan-Meier curves, what you're seeing here is the three-year treatment-free survival rate. So over a three-year period, roughly 79%, or if you flip that around, about 20% dropout rate from surveillance going on to treatment. So this is treatment-free survival. Um, But this does imply durability, that most patients are still treatment-free three years out. And then if you look on the right, this is true survival, overall survival of patients. So we're seeing a three-year survival for patients on surveillance of 86%. Now, that's comparable to 94% for patients who had surgery, but these are obviously a more highly select group of patients who are healthier uh, to go on to surgery. So this is still very good. Um, and then when tumor progression occurs, you know what, what are we seeing with that? If you look at growth rate, 21% of renal masses of any size that are T1 grew by over half a centimeter a year. Um, or if you look at absolute cutoffs of growth of three centimeters or four centimeters, so 34% of tumors grew to over three centimeters, 19% grew to over four centimeters. And then what about metastasis? Four patients were identified within music kidney that had metastasis on um, that did not get treatment. Now, if we do a, a deeper dive into those four with, meta, with potential metastatic disease, one of them actually had been recommended to have surgery, but um, didn't have follow-up. One had been recommended to have a biopsy of a lung nodule that was not done. So two patients with confirmed metastatic disease while on surveillance, which is comparable to what we'd see in the surgery group. And then those patients that went on to get delayed treatment, what kind of treatments did they get? Um, The vast majority of these patients were still able to get a kidney sparing approach. So only in the green there is radical nephrectomy at 18%, but the remainder had some form of either partial nephrectomy, ablation, um, stereotactic radiation. So, um, and this, what we're seeing is if you compare just rates of initial treatment versus what we're seeing here with delayed intervention, pretty much similar rates of kidney sparing. So we're not burning a bridge per se. Um, then if we look at potential triggers for intervention, so what would cause someone on surveillance to go on the treatment? Those patients who are treated, um, this shows those, th- those that would apparently, you know that would have a trigger. So growth rate greater than half a centimeter in a year, um, which is almost half the patients, then a tumor over three centimeters in size or tumor over four centimeters in size. Now you could make an argument that three centimeters is kind of your cutoff where it's harder to do ablation and four centimeters is your cutoff for where it's harder to do a partial nephrectomy. So maybe some patients went on just right before they hit this trigger um, to make that easier for them. But about half of patients had some trigger pushing them um, you know that that might've factored into their decision to go on to treatment. Um, And then if you look at patients just that had these characteristics of a trigger, how many of them actually, what are the rates of intervention among patients with a trigger? And again, you see growth rates number one, followed by three centimeter cutoff and four centimeter cutoff. So how do we know surveillance is working or successful? What would be theoretical signs of success? Obviously, you, want, you don't want patients to have metastasis, um, salvageability, that you can still treat them afterwards if they need it, um, that you're not um, causing patients that when they do need treatment, that they need a worse treatment or that they need nephrectomy when they could have had a partial or nephron sparing, that you're, this is not costing them a bigger decline in renal function, or that if you do have a radical nephrectomy, hopefully there's less harm from that. and um, a quality of life implication that we're avoiding the morbidity and potential complications of intervention, but potentially at the cost of more anxiety for our patients, what we call anxiety. So takeaways from this um, data so far, uh, the data shows surveillance is being used very quite commonly in 54% of T1A masses and a quarter of T1B masses. And the selection appears to be appropriate. Most of these are smaller tumors in older patients that likely have comorbidities. And that there um, is a QI opportunity here and that there is some imaging that's not being done. Now, it's hard to tease out the intention of the treating physician in every scenario. Do some physicians have um, have an intent of maybe less active surveillance or even just observation as opposed to truly active surveillance? So, Those are things that we need to look into in the the future. But it does appear that when delayed intervention is necessary, the kidney sparing is still possible. And uh, so how do we do better with surveillance? This is a video showing actually the music website, how you can go to that and pull up the music roadmap under resources right there, patient education materials. And this pulls up the roadmap and you can click on the roadmap. And that's available to you, but it's also available to your patients. So one important aspect is empowering our patients and giving them this data, um, giving them this information. But also to have an infrastructure in place in our own practices to take the responsibility that if we're putting patients on surveillance, that we have a reliable way to follow them, to get the imaging, and uh, and whether we have our APPs helping us with this, or with a survivorship clinic to really think about. Um, how to increase the utilization of imaging for those patients that that that's been part of their plan. Um, so with that, I'm going to go ahead and turn the time over to our panelists uh, for a panel discussion. Thank you. All right. Great talks. Um, I'm partial to this, but it's such exciting data. To, and now we get to talk about it. Um, I want to um, just welcome all our panelists. Um, we have uh, Dr. Jaffrey with us. Dr. Lane uh, also want to uh, thank Mr. and Mrs. Humphreys for being with us tonight as well to give us their uh, your perspective as a patient and family. Um, also, I want to give a reminder and uh, to everyone that's watching, please um, feel free to send questions through the chat um, because we now have a kind of an open mic or a forum where we can talk about our own perspectives and questions, but we really want to go into the questions that you have about active surveillance and about what you just heard. Um, So um, I'll go ahead and get things started if that's okay with some questions. Um, So first, um, and this is more for um, Dr. Jaffrey and Dr. Lane from a physician standpoint, um, how do you both decide, and you can each take turns, but how do you decide when active surveillance is appropriate for your patients? Um, Dr. Jaffrey,
4: um, I mean, I think I'll, I'll use this as an opportunity to give the plug, you know, for the roadmap. Uh, it reminds me kind of when we did the roadmap for active surveillance for prostate cancer, and it's all laid out there, and it's easy to kind of show those figures to patients, kind of chart them, categorize them, kind of put them in that space, and so a lot of times I'll use the size of the mass. Uh, is kind of my first initial trigger to kind of say, okay, are you a good candidate or a bad candidate for active surveillance, pull up the roadmap, kind of show them how not risky, you know, their tumor is so that they get an understanding that there's a consensus recommendation that it's safe to put them on surveillance, a consensus understanding that their risk of metastasis, loss of life is so low and it's not my opinion, it's, you know, it's coming from our data within the state of Michigan and a consensus that's been provided from the urologist within the state of Michigan. So that that that's how I initially approached it. Now that we have the roadmap there, uh, I find it as a really, really helpful tool.
5: All right.
3: And Brian, how about you? How can you know when active surveillance is appropriate? What what gives makes you feel good about that decision?
1: You know, I, I have been looking at the space for, you know, 15 or more years and, starting from a single institutional registry and perspective that you have a cancer we should take it out. Um, And here we are 15 years later and I really think there's a huge chunk of patients who are not going to benefit from surgery um, either because they're not well enough or because their tumor is really not going to put them at risk. And so I really am pretty amazed that across the state looking at the rates we have. It's not something that a few of us as individuals are doing. It's something that we're all really doing. And now we're really trying to get towards consensus. You get a sense from the patient and the family immediately, right? I mean, there are people who are absolutely freaked out about cancer. We need to do something. um, And based on the clinical scenario, fine. Um, They can get set up for surgery. They can also get a biopsy while we're, you know, waiting for my surgical schedule to accommodate them and then there's others who are totally relieved to know that this is not so bad and 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 wow surveillance is an option i can't believe it this is great it's kind of interesting we spend a lot of our careers as surgeons
3: learning how to do a, a surgery well right and uh and yet as we get more experience some of the hardest decisions are actually when not to do that skill right when when not to operate um sometimes that's even harder than the surgery itself yeah um, well, um, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Humphreys, what are your perspectives on this as a patient? Um, mm-hmm. what are the things that matter most to you? You know, what's most important to find out in, in order to make a decision to go on surveillance to not do I, surgery? I What things do you want to know?
5: Well, I
2: think it's a complexity issue for me, you know, understanding the complexity and how it makes it complex you know just the visual part of it you if you look at that you know it has to be explained in terms of the t1 and other things you know i mentioned uh, Google and t2 and things like that so the complexity was a big factor for me too um and i thought if i had the time i could get you know i i could help my recovery the best i could if i had that six months or nine months or almost a year in my case. So understanding the complexity was a big part. Um, and, you know, how that's is reflective in the complexity is also age, you know, it's also my age. So we have to take in all those factors too. So, um, but that was kind of the the main thing for me. So um, I it probably was for my wife too. I can't really speak for her. Laura can speak, but I had, you know, when you have a diagnosis like this, mine was caught early. uh, It's fearful. It's fearful. So you have to, you know, grasp that and understand that.
6: But from my perspective, if one waits, is kidney function compromised? Is there a chance for metastasis? So that's that's kind of my concern It's it's not just immediate, but it's it's long term. And with the surveillance protocols, I think those kind of address that. So they're scheduled at intervals so that I felt that Jim was being monitored. And when appropriate, interventions would be applied.
2: And it's active surveillance. You know, there were things that we were doing to get ready for that. And, um, you know, so it's a pretty active process. Surveillance is, when you just say surveillance, it's not everything. You know, it's active surveillance.
6: And at that point in time, I pushed him to enroll and, and in silver sneakers. Yes. and Begin an exercise program and adjust diet. Right. So it was really right. we, uh, we working with together. a nutritionist. For we U&M too. That. So that's, that's really that's
3: important. awesome. I I guess the term active surveillance was active on both sides. You know, you've got the physician actively monitoring, but you were actively doing a lot of things on your own. That's great.
6: Yeah. Well, we're a team, that's and. Great um fortunate to to have a support system so
3: on this active surveillance back to our physicians dr jaffrey dr lane um what are the triggers that you use or you know how do you know when to intervene when it's time to be active and move on uh, dr jaffrey
4: what are some of the things that push you to- yeah so i you know, I think, you know, the first time I heard of active surveillance was, you know, Phil Periso out of Hopkins, right? The DISSRM registry, right? And so, you know, I first thought he was, you know, silly in the beginning, you know, years ago when they started, you know, kind of trying to championing this, but I use the same cutoffs that that he kind of uses from their registry, which is tumor growth more than 0.5, mass greater than four, hematuria symptoms, right? So those are the three kind of triggers that I use because I feel like, you know, that's the nice, you know, it's got a great series that, that um, access surveillance that, he, that, that he's built up there.
1: I'll, I'll add you're right on, which is we're be building off of some of the excellent work that Disarm put in. I hope we can put some more data out there about the growth and growth rate, because I think an important thing is if you just use any growth, the primary care physicians freaked out, the patients freaked out, and there's so much measurement error between different tests. Uh, if you got a CT one time and an MR and an ultrasound, and so trying to, you know, put it in everyone's mind, small growth is what we're expecting. Uh, you know, and 0.3 to 0.4 per year is pretty normal, but greater than 0.5 per year is a little larger than normal. So I, I like that as a as a red flag. Here's a question
3: from the chat that relates. Um Question about uh, informative talk. How do you all integrate renal mass biopsy into your active surveillance repertoire at the beginning of the diagnosis, or do you wait for the mass to grow and then recommend a biopsy to guide continued surveillance versus treatment? How does that play in?
1: Uh, let's start with you this time, Brian. I I become uh, pretty. Uh, I I have a black and white on this, which is if through my conversation. The patient is already comfortable with surveillance. I don't want to mess with that at all. And so I do not get a biopsy. Um, but if there's, you know, discomfort and the patient needs evidence to say this is not a high risk cancer. Um, and so we'll be comfortable surveilling versus we'll treat if it is higher risk, that's when I do a biopsy. My fear is always that, you know, the patient's already assured. Uh, I told them it's twenty percent cancer, eighty percent an indolent cancer, and then that biopsy uses the word, and suddenly their, you know, their mind has changed immediately. Dr. Jeffrey, how about you? How are you using biopsy in your practice?
4: So obviously, you know, tumor location is big, right? So you know, some some tumor locations are not amenable to a biopsy. Um, I think it's that you know, like what Brian, you know, Dr. Lane was kind of hitting on is, you know, what's the patient's reaction going to be to that? Um, You know, you have a lot of patients that will say, oh my God, I have stage three cancer. It's like, no, that's nuclear grade. Right. So you have to kind of reassure them on that. Um, On the flip side, it's nice to have a negative or a benign biopsy. Then I can kind of reassure them where my intensity of monitoring or the duration of monitoring is less. So I think that's a very individualized, you know, you have to have that understanding of your patient, what they're going to do with that information, good or bad. Um, to then decide, do, do I biopsy them or not? But that's something I struggle with, right? Is just you know, should I should, should I or shouldn't I biopsy it? And I think that's you know, anecdotally, I feel like all of us talk about that all together, right? And you know, at lunch or in, in meetings, you know, is do we biopsy or not biopsy? I think it's a uh, it's hard to answer that.
1: And there are some centers who are universally biopsying. Uh, to be clear, so these are different opinions than than others have. Craig, you have an opinion on this one? you want to share? Uh,
3: For me, I use it when um, it's looking like we're heading to intervention, especially when the stakes are higher, that maybe that patient loses a kidney. If you make that choice to intervene and you want to have more clarity as to whether it's actually cancer, then I'll uh, do a biopsy or if my patient's really on the fence and they just need that information to make a decision. Um, One more question that came out, um, how do you monitor your patients with advanced CKD that are on surveillance? For me, I do an MRI and maybe an, I probably should do more ultrasounds, but how about you guys for CKD patients?
1: Uh, For imaging, I do just what you say. Uh, The other thing is I'm a big fan of uh, cystatin C and albumin to creatinine ratio uh, as uh, I like to play junior nephrologist uh, and try to figure out you know, how how risky their CKD will be for them in the future. But I get those in addition to the creatinine.
4: Okay. Um, I think from an imaging standpoint, I mean, you know, with the newer gadolinium agents, you know, you can do MR with contrast. So I, I think that, you know, you can get contrasted studies with MR, you know, in those patients with CKD.
3: So in our last minute, a question about anxiety. You know, we talked about triggers for treatment, but there are patients that don't have any treatment any triggers, but they just get tired of following it, or they're scared of following it. They get anxious, right? Um, so I guess as a from a patient perspective, is this a real thing? Physicians sometimes call it scan scanxiety. You know, anxiety of getting these scans. What, did you experience that anxiety as a patient? Did that kind of push you at some point to go get treatment?
2: Um, no. I that's that's how you. That's how you gather the criteria for what you're doing, you know. So yeah. for me, it was no. That's that's how I have to learn about this. Okay. Proceeded that way. So I, for me personally, I, I thought the more information that was there, the better diagnosis I would have, and the more accurate diagnosis I would have. So,
6: if I can step in
2: here, okay,
6: I think that. Information is important. My father died of kidney failure and he didn't seek treatment. So, with information, maybe the outcome would have been different
2: well, yeah, for him. So, me, it was kind of seeking that out. So, yes.
3: Mr. and Mrs. Humphreys, thank you so much for your perspectives and sharing this with us on the panel. Uh, So important, the information that we give our patients to make decisions. Thank you, Dr. Jaffrey, Dr. Lane, uh, for joining. And we'll uh, continue on with the webinar. Thank you. Thank you.
7: Thank you. Thanks, Dr. Rogers. Thank you for the discussion from our kidney group. Lots of progress made and lots of work still to be done. Today, after nine years of our patient reported outcomes project, I look forward to sharing some of our novel ways in which we've started to look at ProData. Patient reported outcomes for prostatectomy has been a flagship project in music and has been active since 2014. Through patients' self-reported measures, we have been able to assess urinary and sexual function after surgery to provide outcomes back to surgeons with the goal of improving these outcomes and also providing these to patients to help them track their postoperative recovery. It has grown to 32 practices, uh, 128 participating physicians who perform radical prostatectomy with outcomes for more than 10,000 patients. We administer pro questionnaires through email or paper mailings. An email sent by the coordinating center directs patients to the EPIC 26 questionnaire. EPIC 26 measures urinary, sexual, bowel, and hormonal function and the impact on quality of life. As a collaborative, we provided our surgeons with threshold goals at three and six months, continents defined it using less than or equal to one pad per day. For three months, we aim for about 75% of men to be achieved, to be able to achieve social continence with 90% of men reaching that benchmark by six months. We have this amazing wealth of data, but we haven't really been able to capitalize on this to improve outcomes. Despite a number of initiatives aimed towards improving these outcomes, such as video reviews, skill sessions, et cetera, it has been really difficult to move the needle. Here, we can see little change from 2014 to present with regards to either three- or six-month social continence. Given that many additional factors outside of surgical technique impact sexual function outcomes, we have not set an arbitrary target. But similarly, we see a 12- and 24-month sexual recovery has largely been unchanged. Pros following radical prostatectomy have been studied in other contexts. The CSER study by Dr. Barocas and Dr. Penson and pros from the PROTECT cohorts studied comparative effectiveness of treatments uh, um, of functional outcomes across different treatment types, including active monitoring or surveillance, uh, surgery, and radiation. However, they maintained the same unidimensional perspective, with function largely being a binary outcome, either the presence or absence of sufficient function. Currently, we evaluate patient-reported outcomes at a fixed time point, 3, 6, 12, or 24 months. Typically, we expect an initial decline in continence and sexual function and counsel patients that by about 3 to 6 months, they'll be down to one pad per day, and by 12 months, about a third of men will have sufficient sexual function. But is this really true for all patients that we counsel them all in the same way? The changes that we look are an average for all patients over time. However, many patients don't follow that average course. This will be impacted not only by baseline function, but where they are in recovery at different time points. Identifying themes or commonality among patients and deconstructing patient-reported outcomes of it can help us better understand how patients recover and how we can help them. Individual pro-reports are technically accessible by all participating surgeons. Logging into the registry, they can be viewed or printed to be shared with the patient during follow-up. It does provide a tidy summary regarding pathological or surgical characteristics, such as the pre-op PSA, Gleason score, staging, nerve sparing, and margin status. Of course, it also provides the pro-data with baseline and follow-up data graphically presented. Our amazing analysts have created a tool available on AskMusic, which allows patients or providers to input key clinical information to generate predictions on continence and sexual function over time that can facilitate counseling and shared decision-making. While we haven't found the magic bullet, rather than trying to fit every patient into the same box, we can better understand recovery and aid in shared decision-making while using these new perspectives as teaching tools for patients to manage and educate regarding expectations post-operatively. At this point, I would like to transition to Dr. Andy Crum, an assistant professor of learning health sciences at Michigan Medicine. Dr. Crum specializes in learning analytics, quality improvement, and currently serves as the director of OSS Music. His work explores the use of data intensive research methods to measure learning and improve learning environments in health and education systems. Today, I invite him to help us rethink how we interpret pro data by unpacking common themes among patients which form different trajectories that better reflect individual patient perspectives. Thank you, Dr. Crum. Thank
8: you, Dr. George. I'm excited to share with everyone our work on developing patient recovery trajectories. Our analytical goals for developing these trajectories were to identify unique recovery trajectories, post-radical prostatectomy using our patient reported outcomes. In general, we were hoping to clarify the prevalence of each trajectory that we identified to answer the question, what does recovery look like? As well as specify cutoff values for pros at specific points in time to answer the question, when could we intervene? Our analytical approach involved a technique referred to as latent variable mixture modeling or latent profile analysis and in general, it's a statistical technique for estimating distinct groups within a data set. We looked at the EPIC26, and in particular focused on two scales, the urinary function scale and the sexual function scale. On the EPIC26, scores range from 0 to 100, where higher is considered better. And we looked at five time points, pre-treatment, three months, six months, 12, and 24 months. And we worked with patients who had data for all five time points, approximately 2,300 patients. So what do we mean by a recovery trajectory? We define it as patterns in patients recovery post-RP across five time points. And here I put on a couple of examples, one on the left-hand side showing an average trajectory. and on the right-hand side, the individual patient trajectories over our five time points where the y-axis is the EPIC26 scale, the x-axis includes our five time points, and on the right-hand side, you can see the individual trajectories for 2,300 patients. In general, we are trying to find the right balance between the simplicity of an overall average and the accuracy of our individual patient patterns. So let's take a look at the urinary function and referring back to our two questions, what does recovery look like and when could we intervene? A couple of key values to pay attention to as we walk through some of the analyses we put up on the screen here for the EPIC26 urinary function scale. Around a score of 100, a patient can be considered or reports using one pad per day and perceiving their urinary incontinence to be a very small problem, as opposed to a score of 15 where a patient is reporting two or more pads per day and perceive their incontinence to be a moderate problem. Here's the average recovery trajectory for our patient population. And on average, patients have high function, pre-treatment, they experience a decline at three months, and are using one or fewer pads per day with lower bother by 12 months but what's lost in the single average. In looking at our individual patient recovery trajectories over time, we can see that there's a large amount of variation that we miss when we only focus on the individual or single average. I've highlighted five patients just to make it slightly more concrete amongst the 2300, what those patient trajectories can look like. And our analytical approach led to uh, three distinct recovery trajectories. And up to this point, we found them to be a useful balance between the simplicity of a single uh, average and the accuracy of those individual trajectories over time. We can see uh, overlaid how the trajectories uh, uh, align with those individual trajectories from previous slides. So if we look at the prevalence of these, answering that question of what does recovery look like? So for 50% of our patients, we can see uh, that line for recovery trajectory one. 38% 38% of our patients fall into a recovery trajectory number two, and approximately 13% of patients uh, align with recovery trajectory number three. Looking at trajectory one, we can see that patients have high pretreatment function and an average score of 70 at three months, which equates to approximately one or fewer pads per day, and again, perceiving uh, the urinary function to be a small problem. And most regain continence and near baseline function by six months. Trajectory two, high pretreatment function once again, an average score of 40 at three months, which leads, equates to one pad per day and a small problem, and some but not all use one or fewer pads per day by 12 months. For trajectories three, we can see that patients once again have high pretreatment function, an average score of 15 at three months, which equates to two or more pads per day and a moderate problem related to the urinary function, and limited overall recovery beyond six months. So. Asking the question, when could we intervene? Looking at these three trajectories, we see the importance of three months in relation to the 12 month outcome. Looking again at our pad per use per day across the three trajectories. Looking specifically at the three month score, we can see that a positive recovery trajectory begins then with 86% of our patients who report a score of 15 or higher at three months. 96% of those patients end up uh, reporting one or fewer pads per day at 12 months. A flat recovery trajectory, however, begins at three months, where around 14% of our patients report a score of 15 or lower at three months, and only half of those patients report using a pad one or fewer times at 12 months. So overall, our our takeaways include identifying three distinct recovery trajectories, which may be important to show patients that variation preoperatively, as well as the importance of the three-month time point in understanding long-term urinary functional recovery, which may help with managing expectations as well as providing a potential to intervene earlier with patients around uh, opportunities like early or intensive pelvic floor physical therapy. So let's take a look now at the sexual function score scale. And again, our two focal questions, what does recovery look like and when could we intervene? To orient everyone to a couple of scores, Uh, on the sexual function scale, we can see a score of 67 equates to erections, which are firm enough for masturbation or foreplay, Uh, erections uh, occurring half the time when wanted, and a score of 27 uh, erections being not firm enough uh, for any sexual activity and occurring less than half the time when desired. So we can take a look at our average functional trajectory on the left and our individual patient recovery trajectories on the right for the same 2,300 patients so we can see that recovery looks like wide pre-surgical variation with wide variation in recovery we're able to identify four distinct recovery trajectories with that capture that wide pre-surgical variation as well as that wide variation in recovery which is a major improvement upon that single average the prevalence of each trajectory you can see a trajectory 1 uh, occurs in about 15% of our patients uh, for the second uh, trajectory, and our third and fourth recovery trajectories account for 38 and 21% respectively. Looking at trajectories one and two, we can see that both have similar preoperative function. Uh, Trajectory two, however, has a lower three-month score and does not recover as well as trajectory one. Again, reiterating the importance of the three-month time point in predicting recovery. Recoveries or trajectories one and two account for, again, 15% of the patients, uh, recovery two for 27%. And to make sense of these different values, for trajectory one, uh, they're reporting erections firm enough for masturbation and foreplay only. And for trajectory two, that three-month score uh, accounts for erections not being firm enough for any sexual activity. Looking at trajectories three and four, we can see relatively similar preoperative function, similar long-term recovery, where trajectory three accounts for 38% of patients and recovery four, 21%, but the question is, how do they differ? And in particular, we find that these two trajectories differ significantly on their perceptions of their sexual function being problematic, where trajectory four considers their function to be a very small problem, as opposed to trajectory three, which perceives their sexual function to be a very big problem. So asking ourselves this question that we've been coming back to across both scales, when could we intervene? For sexual function, it may be important to uh, have specific conversations related to sexual function and the problematic nature of that preoperatively, as well as to, again, have another conversation with our patients at three months in relation to their function and perceptions of bother. So our major takeaways for the sexual function uh, recovery, uh, we were able to identify four distinct trajectories Uh, with highly variable 12 and 24-month outcomes. Again, the importance of the three-month time point for understanding long-term recovery in terms of functional recovery, as well as perceptions of bother. And identifying the preferences preoperatively may be an important aspect of counseling and shared decision-making. To understand why some patients are bothered and others not, we looked at their written responses to questions on the patient-reported outcome instrument. We looked at 1,875 written responses to the question, why are you not sexually active? We grouped those different responses together and developed different domains and definitions for general, for categories of responses. On the, on the screen, we're showing a few of those different domains and dimensions related to that question and identifying factors from complications to structural factors associated with lack of time or energy for uh, being sexually active, as well as other elements uh, related to the sexual aids that our patients uh, are using. So our next steps as we look at our patient-reported outcomes are to continue developing models to help predict what those trajectory recovery uh, outcomes will look like for our patients, as well as combining our urinary and sexual functions to get a broader understanding of recovery across both domains. And in general, we're hoping to recenter the patient in our patient-reported outcome research, as well as quality improvement activities, in terms of reports and decision aids that we provide to both urologists and patients. So, highlighting and referring back to the limitations of PROS that uh, Dr. George highlighted before, Uh, currently, many are only working with a single average over time, few patients are average, and most of the time we're using our reported outcomes for research. We've begun to highlight the importance of moving beyond the individual average and highlighting the variation and striking the right balance between our our multiple trajectories, the individual averages, and the multiple trajectories over time. We're identifying different intervention opportunities at three months for both the urinary and sexual function scales, and hopefully providing a better opportunity for patient consultation around sexual function and bother. And with that, I look forward to uh, discussing further uh, our research and opportunities to support your work and your interactions with patients.
9: All right. Okay. So um, great conversation there. So. Uh, to kick off our Q&A session, I just want to remind everyone if they have questions, please put them in the chat. Um, we're joined by Dr. George, Dr. Ginsburg, Dr. Crum, and Dr. Rebello, who uh, was kind enough to join us this evening to serve as our patient advocate. Okay, so let's get started with the physicians. So Kevin, um, how do you counsel patients when you're talking to them preoperatively about erectile function and incontinence?
10: Well, thanks to these trajectories, I actually started today to talk to patients a little bit differently. But before this, I I pretty much leaned on these averages and basically showing, you know, what does the intervention do to the population average? And I basically would say something kind of generic, looking at our data and memorials data and say that, you know, 80 to 90 percent of men six months after surgery will be socially continent. Some men, unfortunately, will do a little bit worse and will need additional interventions in the form of like a sphincter or a sling. And then something kind of equally as generic about sexual function, that again, saying that most men take you know a substantial hit, that somewhere around 50% of men will be able to have erections firm enough for intercourse with the aid of something like Viagra after surgery. But you know, I think that's really the beauty of this work that Andy has spearheaded here in these trajectories, really showing that there's a lot more variation and that very few patients actually show that average. Some do work better and some do worse. And I think that this is gonna be really impactful for patient counseling.
9: Great, thank you. And Dr. Ribello, what uh, were you told about your post-op function after surgery?
5: I'm I'm not a doctor, but uh, I'm a master's in engineering. (laughs) Oh, So I'm the patient in this case, yes. Yes, I do know that. And, and uh, what, what what is specifically your question?
9: So what what were you, when, when you were being counseled preoperatively, what were you told um, about your uh, functional outcomes like erections and incontinence?
5: Yeah, the, at University of Michigan, we had the pre-preparation with surgeons and social workers. We had a good explanation. My mindset was, let's get this done. So I did not pay much attention to okay. the possible outcomes. I had a fixed direction to go.
9: Okay, fair enough. My case. We do hear that from a lot of patients often.
5: Mm-hmm.
9: Um, okay, and when, when you were finished with your surgery, uh, did you feel that there were any surprises there? Were, were you where you wanted to be after surgery?
5: I took it. So for me, it was the outcome, the risk, that I was going to take to get rid of the tumor was worth anything. So and then I took that route. So incontinence is I have, I have to wear one pad a day. Sexual is not the way it was, but with Viagra, it uh, can work. So I have to manage.
9: OK, great. Well, thank you for sharing that information. Mm-hmm. All right. Dr George uh, at what point do you start to think about offering interventions let's start with for um, continents
7: yeah so with with continents I think it really depends I, I do use some of the, before knowing this data that we've, that we've shared today, you know, I've, I've, I've tried to adhere to this a, a little bit, maybe not so, so much by what is the degree of urinary leakage, but rather uh, how much that you're, how much that bothers a particular person. So um, Jose has been a patient of mine for a number of years now, and, you know, we've walked this journey together and he was, and, and many patients that are completely focused on the cancer outcome. But once you step out of that and the surgery is complete, now you start to have to work on on facilitating that quality of life to be able to get patients, Jose, his wife, where they actually want to be. And so I would say that around three to six months, if I'm seeing a high degree of pad usage or alternatively um, uh, pad usage that's causing significant urinary bother. Um, I will start to make a referral to one of our reconstructive surgeons who focus a little bit more on post-prostatectomy incontinence. Um, early public ph- floor physical therapy is already the standard of care for us at the University of Michigan, in that all men are typically enrolled in public floor physical therapy when they're scheduled for prostatectomy as well.
11: That's great. Okay. I think that's
10: a really important you know aspect of this work that you just highlighted. And that is that three month time point really does seem to be pivotal. And you know, I've, I've been guilty of doing this myself, and you know, seeing someone who's unfortunately struggling with leaking at three months, and just kind of saying, "Hang in there, it's early. Make sure you're doing your Kegels." But I think the stat is very informative that you know something that we intuitively knew that that three month time point, if someone's kind of still struggling there, they're unfortunately not going to have a great ret- uh, recovery. But I think this does allow us to kind of change that narrative, how we're discussing this with patients, maybe alter those expectations. And like you said, Arvin, make an early referral to someone, one of our reconstructive colleagues. You know, maybe they're not going to be signed up for surgery at three months, but at least they'll be looped into the right people and can help that process along.
9: Okay. We have a comment in the chat from Dr. Lonsway, who said in general, he finds it difficult to wait three months to suggest PT. Um, and will highly suggest PT at one month after surgery if male is using greater than two pads, which yeah, I think that, you know, it's a very helpful adjunct in patients for their recovery. Um, Kevin, when do you start to incorporate the PT discussion? Is it immediately post-op in the hospital? Do you see patients at, at three months? Do you see them for their first post-op visit? When, when do you start to talk about this?
10: Yeah, I mean, I bring it up preoperatively. Um, when the catheter comes out, we we have a very you know I use the music Kegel ex, uh, you know exercise pamphlet. We go over that in detail. Really make sure they understand how to activate those muscles. And then I usually see people back for the first PSA at around six weeks, so a little bit more than that one month time point. And if someone is still like saying like I'm you know I thought I was going to be doing better, I, I usually start to initiate that process um, of getting them looped into PT.
9: Great. We have another comment from Dr. Clear. He says, "Great talk. Um, is there evidence that interventions such as pelvic floor therapy for incontinence or vacuum device for ED, for example, changes the trajectory to a more favorable one?" Um, we'll just throw that out to anyone. I think Andy, do you have any any insight on that? I don't do any of these things factor into you know your models, or is there any way for us to look at that kind of information in the future?
8: Yeah, looking right now at what we're currently collecting uh, through music and when we administer the EPIC 26, we also ask additional questions related to the different kinds of sexual function uh, interventions that patients are uh, using over uh, over a given time period. Uh, So our next sets of models and analyses will start to look at the trajectories based on those different interventions that patients are reporting to us. So uh, that that represents an important next step for us is to start to integrate that other information beyond the sort of standard uh, pro questions.
9: Okay. And then one more question for you. Can we extrapolate these trajectories to pre-op? Can we tell what trajectory a patient is going to land in from their preoperative profile?
8: And that also represents the next sort of uh, step for this work. So initially, just trying to get a sense of the prevalence of these different trajectories. So that preoperative conversation can provide a few different pathways beyond that one single average um, so that's currently where they are and now using other pretreatment factors to predict what trajectory one is likely to be on uh, post-treatment, uh, that represents the next uh, sort of uh, exciting part of this work.
9: Okay,
10: I think you're right, that is going to be very exciting, Andy, because that's going to help us, again, elucidate those men with erectile function that are going to fall between trajectories three and four. If we can help identify people that are really, you know, sexual function remains a priority for them pre that are going to be very bothered by the fact that they're already teetering on poor sexual function that unfortunately may be very difficult for them post-operatively. We can figure out who's really gonna be bothered by that and help align their treatment goals and treatment decisions with their priorities. Like that really is an exciting next evolution here.
9: All right, another question for Jose. Uh, with what you've seen today, what do you think about these trajectories? Does this speak to you more than seeing patient averages for outcomes?
5: As uh, my fellow colleague said, the more information, the better. So, so if uh, if the doctors or the system can give you information, so that we can probably get prepared and get the mindset, it's very important. I like to get to, get, to be informed. So, and what you guys are doing here, it's important.
9: Um, okay, we have another comment in the chat. This one's from Courtney Bailey. Um, does, has anyone found that preoperative pelvic floor physical therapy improves recovery?
7: You know, I get that question a lot um, from a number of different patients. I don't discourage them to do maybe not necessarily formal pelvic floor physical therapy, uh, but oftentimes we recommend uh, the Kegel's maneuvers and the Kegel's exercises. I think there's a certain degree of where we we don't exactly know where that person will fall immediately postoperatively, And, you know, of course, we've seen now it's a complete spectrum. Uh, It's not that individual average. And so you may have we may have patients who within six weeks, they have really achieved a significant amount of progress uh, with their continence. and we have others who are completely different. So I don't discourage them, but I typically don't recommend formal public for physical therapy, but rather informally uh, Kegel's exercises.
9: Okay, well, thank you everyone for your insightful comments. Um, I'm gonna pass it over to Dr. Down now for the rock section.
12: Uh, Well, welcome everybody to the second part of the program. Um, Kudos to the prostate team. Uh, That was great engagement and an excellent presentation. Uh, Happy to follow that. My name is Casey Dow. For those of you that do not know me, I am the director of the uh, Kidney Stone Initiative Rocks Within Music. Today, uh, myself and a close colleague are going to be discussing uh, shared decision-making related to ureteroscopy and shockwave lithotripsy with a particular focus on helping the patient make these uh, sometimes difficult choices. I think to best illustrate this, uh, it is beneficial to look at a case example. So this is a, a real patient. It's a 70 year old male who presented uh, to the office with a history of hypertension and hyperlipidemia, um, otherwise relatively healthy uh, of note, not on anticoagulation and no prior kidney stone surgery, but was diagnosed incidentally on imaging. Uh, with is this intermittently symptomatic seven millimeter right lower pole mid pole renal stone? Um, what we can see here on the CT scan, uh, which is the upper panel, uh, is measurement of the stone uh, as well as a, a rough measurement of the skin to stone distance, which is eight point five centimeters. So not very not very long. Patient in the office had a KUB X ray, which showed that the stone is radiopaque and visible over the twelfth rib. Um, uh, A bit more of the case review, the patient is intermittently symptomatic with right-sided flank pain, uh, travels internationally for work, and is sometimes in areas where finding healthcare would be challenging, so is very interested in uh, prophylactic surgical intervention. And in this particular case, as the urologist, ureteroscopy and shockwave lithotripsy were presented as options. So I think if we wanted to root this back in the data, as we often do, and is the power of the music registry, how can we help patients come to a decision about treatment between ureteroscopy and shockwave bliss I think one way we can do that is by looking at outcomes. So this is music data, uh, looking at at kidney stones that are less than or equal to one centimeter in size, so kind of uh, consistent with the case I presented. And if we were looking at efficacy, uh, that's the bar chart there on the left, which we measure as stone free rates with any form of imaging within eight weeks, we see probably not surprisingly that ureteroscopy outpaces shockwave lithotripsy with regard to stone free rate. Our stone free rates, which we've published on, are around 55% for ureteroscopy and around 40% for shockwave lithotripsy. So that leaves us with the note there at the bottom that ureteroscopy is superior with regard to stone free rates. But we get a different story if we start to look at things like safety and we're measuring safety here as unplanned healthcare encounters. So there on the left and the right-sided bar chart, we see emergency department visits and on the right hospitalizations. Now ED visits is something we've really drilled down on uh, for ureteroscopy, but even still, we see that uh, ED visits with URS far outpace those with shockwave lithotripsy. Probably again, not that uh, surprising to uh, our panelists and folks here that are listening in. And the same is true for hospitalizations uh, at a rate of probably uh, two to threefold higher for both URS uh, and shockwave lithotripsy. So in summary, ureteroscopy results in more unplanned healthcare encounters. So as we can already see, we're setting up a tension here of better outcomes as far as stone free rate, but uh, comes at a cost of unplanned healthcare encounters regarding ureteroscopy. I think it's important, and we've noted in the prostate initiative and now more recently in ureteroscopy and shockwave lithotripsy, that we need to also understand the patient experience. And so if we look at the comparison between ureteroscopy in blue and shockwave lithotripsy in lighter blue with regard to pain experienced after surgery, uh, what we're plotting here is uh, uh, pain measured by what's called the PROMIS scale. And so what we see is the pre-surgery time point. So that's like a baseline. Uh, Questionnaires submitted at seven to 10 days asking patients to rate their pain in the last week, and then a convalescent phase at four to six weeks. And just to reference everybody, this point at 50 is the average amount of pain that any American is experiencing. So numbers above that are considered uh, significant pain. Those pain scores up to 60 are, are severe pain. And those below that are less than what patients are experiencing uh, in the United States. And what we can see is if we look at specifically that 7 to 10-day time point, ureteroscopy plotted in the dark blue is more painful during the first week than shockwave lithotripsy. Again, uh, based on its invasiveness, not that surprising, but an important thing uh, to consider when we're counseling this patient. I think the last thing that we can focus on from a patient perspective, and we are now measuring in our PRO initiative, is satisfaction. Uh, What we're measuring here uh, on the left-hand side is a comparison again with ureteroscopy in dark blue and shockwave in light blue uh, with regard to satisfaction with the treatment choice at 7 to 10 days and 4 to 6 weeks. This is a suite of questions asked to the patient. I think what we can see here is that uniformly, higher numbers being more satisfied, patients are satisfied with either surgical procedure, but interestingly, at 7 to 10 days, it appears though the confidence intervals nearly cross, that ureteroscopy patients may be slightly less satisfied than those undergoing shockwave lithotripsy, but at four to six weeks, these uh, equal out. And again, I think what I'd like to highlight here is in the state of Michigan, at least, patients are highly satisfied with their treatment choice. So I think what we've set up here nicely is that it's a balancing act when we're counseling patients between ureteroscopy and shockwave lithotripsy. And what we balanced in that first slide is the difference between efficacy and safety, understanding that ureteroscopy is more efficacious as far as stone-free rates, but it comes at an expense of higher unplanned healthcare encounters. Uh, So we're balancing that safety. And I think what we're learning through our patient-reported outcomes or PRO initiative is that we should view both of these facts, efficacy and safety, through the lens of the patient experience. And as I think I highlighted, patients experience more pain within the first week if they undergo ureteroscopy. And pretty much from a person on down, patients are very satisfied. So I believe that this is kind of a way that we can conceptualize the best way to counsel patients between ureteroscopy and shockwave lithotripsy. Where does that leave us then in the state of Michigan? What I'd like to see here, and I think most would, is that case characteristics dictate what sort of treatment patients are getting. So if we hearken back to our first case. You know, cases are clearly appropriate or not appropriate for shockwave lithotripsy, and we've talked about that at prior meetings. But what's interesting is, as we're plotting here, uh, practice-related choices for treatment for stones less than or equal to one centimeter, it really seems that who you see is what you get with regard to shockwave or ureteroscopy, meaning that practice uh, biases may dictate treatment choice rather than case characteristics to a degree. So, again, these data come from music. These are risk-adjusted data as far as age, comorbidity, and and, and the like. And what we see is if we take, for example, those charted up in the upper right-hand corner, those are practices that are heavily using shockwave lithotripsy for stones less than or equal to one centimeter in size. So, there are four or five practices that when they see those cases, more than 75% of patients get shockwave lithotripsy. And the converse is true when we look down at ureteroscopy. There are practices that are treating 100% of less than or equal to one centimeter stones with ureteroscopy and not even potentially considering shockwave lithotripsy. Now, I can't say uh, for a fact that this may not be due to shockwave lithotripsy availability, uh, uh, surgeon comfort, or anything like that. But if we're in a situation here where we're wanting to present these uh, two treatment options with equipoise, that being that either may be reasonable in certain characteristics, seeing these practices on the extreme is somewhat concerning. Uh, And again, if we try to parse this a little bit differently by looking at case volume, what we can see here is that there are very high volume practices, more than 500 cases, uh, either in the renal stone, or excuse me, in the shockwave lithotripsy or ureteroscopy cohorts that are still um, really preferentially using either ureteroscopy or shockwave lithotripsy. So, it does not appear that this is a Um, uh, practice volume uh, phenomenon. It really does seem like there may be some inherent biases in the way that we're counseling these patients. I think what I'd like to do, though, is not uh, cast a pall over this and say that this is a major problem because we haven't tackled this. And if we look at our uh, prostate cancer colleagues' uh, data, what we find is that Uh, pre-active surveillance roadmap, uh, which we rolled out to help better counsel providers and patients uh, for treatment of uh, low-risk prostate cancer, we found that there was wide variation in the rate of active surveillance use. So, what we're plotting here is data in 2015 uh, of the percent of patients seen by each music practice that were put on active surveillance for low-risk prostate cancer. And what we can see here is that practices down towards the left side of the graph were putting very few patients with low-risk prostate cancer on active surveillance. And much like we saw with the ureteroscopy or shockwave, there were practices that were highly utilizing active surveillance. How did we tackle this problem? Well, uh, we created probably one of the most comprehensive and widely utilized um, uh, roadmaps in in urology and the urology space. And this was widely successful in reducing that variation across the state of Michigan with regard to treatment choice for men with favorable risk prostate cancer. So where I'd like to leave things, uh, and then I'll turn things over uh, to our next speaker, is how can we address these biases uh, as it appears uh, with how we're counseling patients uh, for these renal stones for shockwave or ureteroscopy. And I think what we can uh, coalesce around is this idea of shared decision-making. I am by no means an expert in this space. And so we're fortunate to have uh, Dr. Uh, John DiBianco, who is currently an assistant professor of urology at the University of Florida in Gainesville who's taken it upon himself to develop a shared decision-making tool, which we hope uh, that he will introduce today and uh, provide you some context that we can utilize in the state of Michigan going forward to really best counsel our patients between these two important treatment options. So with that, I'll turn it over to Dr. DiBianco and thank you for taking the time to listen.
13: Thank you, Casey. It's very exciting to be back. And thank you, Dr. Ghani and the whole music community for the opportunity to present this work. By way of background, shared decision-making is the, ba- is the process of balancing best available evidence with patient values to reach a medical decision. Surgical decision aids provide a basic understanding of the disease process and the relevant decisions that can be made. These aids are most relevant in scenarios where the risk-benefit ratio is either uncertain or equivalent. Perhaps most importantly, they provide a clinical information and a framework to communicate the patient's values to the clinician. There's very good evidence to suggest that these tools enable uh, patient and physician collaboration, improve the quality of the decision-making process by aligning patient values and scientific evidence, and improve patient satisfaction. As Casey said before and described previously, uh, patients who are candidates for either ureteroscopy or shockwave lithotripsy appear to be ideal candidates for uh, for treatment decision improvement. Once we identified these patients as a a target population or the scope of this practice, we aimed to develop a surgical decision aid to facilitate this decision-making process. We educated ourselves, uh, myself, and the entirety of the team on how we could go about this in a scientific way to ensure that we actually created a valid instrument. Luckily, the AUA and the Ottawa International Patient Decision Aid Standards Collaborative Group provided precedent and a framework to follow. The next step in the process was to formulate a steering committee, a group of experts to help guide all aspects of the creation process. This consisted of stone treatment stakeholders, experts in treatment, and very importantly, physicians with expertise in decision making specifically. So Dr. Julia Lane, assistant professor of urology, whose research focus is health services research, shared decision making, as well as Dr. Sarah Holly, professor of uh, internal medicine, who has expertise in healthcare management and policy, health behavior, and health education. Our committee followed the patient decision standards and developed an initial version of this surgical decision aid. For context, the tool was designed to look and flow in a specific way in order to allow the patient to interact with it prior to their evaluation with the urologist while still accomplishing the goals. We'll see an example of this later on. In order to objectively determine if the surgical decision aid was accurate and actually functioned appropriately, we conducted a rigorous alpha validation process. Without getting too detailed, this involves face validation with patient advocates, content validation with music urologists, you all. And in summary, we created a validated surgical decision aid for patients with nephrolithiasis with both high content and face validation. Ultimately, The following domains were deemed to be relevant to the the decision-making process. These were treatment effectiveness, number of procedures, risk of complications, pain associated with the procedure, and recovery time. We'll now watch a short video which demonstrates how one might explain this to a patient before we send it back to Casey for further discussion. So thank you for coming in today. Unfortunately, you have a kidney stone. And when we were looking at your information from the referral and looking at your scan, the stone size, and the medications you take, it was determined that you're a candidate for both of the two most common procedures that we do for kidney stones. This is a uh, tool and a piece of paper and information I'd like you to take a look at kind of before we make a decision because it gives us a little bit of information briefly about both procedures as well as asking you some questions about some of your priorities for your treatment. So as you can see on the first part here, uh, it describes both ureteroscopy, or URS, and shockwave lipotripsy, or s And it provides some basic information to kind of get a general understanding about what the two procedures are. Below that, it specifically outlines some of the key differences of the two treatment options and some of the pluses and minuses of both of them. As we move on to the second page, It asks you for your input, and so some of those key differences, we want to understand which is the best procedure for you specifically. So depending on some of your preferences, your treatment goals may align better with one procedure versus another. And so lastly, on the bottom part of the second page, what we'll do is we'll have you circle the most important goals you have as far as your treatment. This sort of aligns with some of the differences that we have between the two procedures. So hopefully we can come to an agreement on which procedure will be the best for you. So I'll have you uh, read this over and fill this out and I'll be back and we'll talk about the results. Sounds like a plan, thank you. Thank you for watching that video. Casey, back to you and the panel for our discussion.
0: Hello, uh, and uh so, uh, welcome uh, to the panel discussion. Uh, I'm not Casey, I'm Kushad Ghani, and uh, um, I'm stepping in for Dr. Dow, who um, has not been able to attend due to a, a last minute emergency. So I'd like to welcome the panel. So let's welcome uh, Dr. John DiBianco at University of Florida. Welcome back, John, to Michigan, although I know you're still in Florida, but you're here <laughs> in Michigan with us, okay? Exactly. Uh, let's welcome uh, Dr. Naveen kachru from Henry Ford Health. Hey, Naveen. And then Dr. Dave Wensler from uh, Comprehensive Urology. Hi, hi, Dave. Good to see hi. you. Good to see you guys and then, too. And then I guess our chief guest, uh, the most important person here on the panel is Heather Worster Welcome Heather. And um, you're a patient advocate and uh, we are glad to have you. I think uh, you're you're joining us all the way from Kenya. And I i know, yeah. you, yes. So three, it's, uh, a, uh,
11: it's a pleasure to be here. And uh, if I, I,
0: I think one thing you might want to do maybe um, Heather is maybe that's it, turn off the video and uh, then it might allow us to hear you a bit better. Uh, so um, I just wanted to say thank you. I know it's, it's- in Kenya.
11: Yes, it's a pleasure to be here. I hope my um, sound is coming through clear with the video off.
0: Yes, much better.
11: I will uh, turn it back to you.
0: Yeah, much better. So listen, I would like to start with you. Tell us about your experience, your kidney stone patient. Tell us a little bit more about what you experienced.
11: So I've had three kidney stones and my first kidney stone I had um, a stent put in. and And at the time, it was mostly because uh, the lithotripsy wasn't in the city or wasn't available. or um, And it was just um, a, a case. The cart- I met the criteria for having a stent placed. And then I developed a second kidney stone. And I watched closely. Uh, I get followed closely by Casey because I don't want to have a kidney stone while I'm in Kenya giving medical care to people that, can't get medical care. <laughs> so um the point is, is um I we, I try to monitor this stuff mostly with Casey. And uh, so when he uh, talked to me about lithotripsy for my second, uh, and I'm not going to remember the criteria or my stone size or any of that stuff, but I will just say this, that this, these kinds of tools really help. Uh, with, uh, you know, a patient saying to you as surgeons, so what would you do if I was your mother? What would you do if I was your sister? Which, Mm -hmm. like, you know, my situation is really different from your mother and sister. So um, I love this tool, and uh, I'm happy to uh, speak to it. But anyway, after I had my lithotripsy, I came up to him postoperatively and just said, that was smoothest, easiest thing ever. I never want to have a stent placed again. So uh, that was kind of it. But that's how I became a panel member, I think.
0: Okay. well, That's awesome. Thank you. And so we'll get more of your perspectives in a a moment. And for the folks out there, please send in your questions into the chat. We already have some come in, and I will be addressing those in a a sec. Uh, So Naveen and Dave, Naveen, I'll start with you. You've used this in your clinic. What was your feedback? How did it go with the patients?
14: yeah so thanks so I, I was actually using it for the first time this week with some of my patients um i used it with uh mainly first time stone formers who were coming in for a consultation i thought it was a great decision making tool because you, it was very easy to use. I was surprised by that. It was very easy and very quick. You have, you, you have two pages there with a lot of information. There's two boxes, there's, two, uh, there's a table comparing the two different uh, treatments. But actually, it's very quick to go through it and explain to patients You know, very easily, these are the difference between these two different treatments. And I was surprised how quick it was. And then the thing that I like is the fact that it identifies treatment goals. Every person comes to you with a very different goal of what they want. Some people want that stone out. Some people want, they don't want a stem. And I think this really helps you contextualize that sometimes. And I like the fact that it's like a little sheet that you can give away to the patient. And this patient, they were like, oh, I don't know what I want to do. I want to go away and think about it. And you can, they can just take this away with them. And then they can call you back and say, hey, I've looked over the priorities. I've looked at the differences. This is what I want to do. And that's what that patient did. Uh, And I think, yeah, I think it's a really nice little tool that you guys have created. And let me ask you personally,
0: as a surgeon, you saw the data that Casey presented that with that variation in practice, Where do you think you fit in, in terms of uh,
14: uh, how much uretroscopy versus shockwave? What's your uh, distribution, you think? I'm, I'm going to be, I'm guilty. I do a lot more ureteroscopy. I think just naturally the trends towards ureteroscopy are, as we know, are increasing. And I think we're all victims of our training. I think at the end of the day, a lot of us, you know, you know, younger, younger trainees who've come through, we've done a lot of ureteroscopy and maybe not done a lot of shockwave and seen the benefits of the, of the shockwave. We, we've developed, as I think they mentioned in the other, in the other talks about we've all developed skill sets and things. We want to utilize those skill sets. So I'm guilty of doing a lot of urethroscopy compared to shockwave, but there's a lot of data coming out. And I know, you, know Kershia, you were out in England recently when there was a lot of data coming about the effectiveness of shockwave in all different types of stones and stones uh, of, of densities. And I think we you know, you know know we need to maintain equipoints. I think we need to stop just doing what we think is the right thing and do what's right for the patient. And I think that's what hopefully this tool will make us do a bit more of.
0: And we just heard from Heather, right, who had had a urethroscopy and a stent and then had a shockwave and she was... Saying, oh my God, shockwave was amazing. So, so Dave, what's your personal practice like? How much do you think is your distribution between shockwave and ureteroscopy?
15: Yeah, so I'm probably similarly guilty um, in doing, you know, more ureteroscopy than um, shockwave. Things that kind of sway me one way or another is, um, you know, I probably do more shockwave on the asymptomatic, like renal calculus. That is getting larger, just because it, people come and they go. Well, why do I have to have something done for it? Because it's not causing me any problems. And I try to say, well, it, not now, but you know, Friday night at one in the morning, it, it, it possibly could. And I do more. I lean more towards ureteroscopy. Certainly, if they already have a stent, um, because you're you're pre-stented, it makes it easier. They already know what to expect with the stent. So those are some of the things I use. But I, I agree with Naveen. I, I'm also guilty of probably doing more ureteroscopy than shockwave.
0: And then, Dave, I know you've used this in the clinic, and I'll get your perspectives of of the decision aid, but there's a good question coming in from Dr. Eric Ratchford saying that the decision aid appeared to state that urethroscopy was a single-stage procedure, uh, and could that not be misleading for the patient, as that's never a guarantee based on patient anatomy? And I, I hope that's a really good question. So who else better to ask that than the creator of the decision aid, Dr. DiBianco?
13: Yeah. So I mean I, I feel bad. It wasn't really me who created it, it was you all. So I uh so I really can't take the blame for all that. But the um no, I mean this is a in general kind of a kind of a thing. I mean, true shared decision making is a very rigorous process where everybody has to understand the exact nature of all the different decisions and all the different aspects of the disease process. So that's one of the reasons why we went towards the shared uh, the surgical decision aid, because it's a more brief um Uh, understanding and interaction. And and Naveen, you had just mentioned, you know, you were surprised how quick it was. The thing that we were all worried about when we were discussing this idea was urologists are busy. People who treat stones are typically pretty busy. You know, if you're going to add 10 minutes to each clinic visit, that's not something people are going to use. So the idea was we got to do something that's useful. And so in context, a lot of these statements and so forth were were vetted to all the urologists and, and our steering committee and it, these are sort of the the best general statements that we can kind of come up with with the with the given evidence. And so, and
0: on that point, do you think, John, this is something you let's you know we all know about sandwich therapy, right? Bread, the cheese or the meat, and then you got another bit of bread. Do you think this is a a, a document you give to the patient before you see them in the clinic in advance? during the clinic or something like what Naveen was saying, you know, take this, think about it more. It's the after. Where do you think this fits in? in And I think it might be different for every clinician and how they run their practice, but where have you been doing it in your practice?
13: Yeah. And that's what's so exciting about this aspect of it, because we kind of were, the alpha testing was sort of in this bubble, right? It's in the, the people who kind of are in the know a little bit with some patient advocates, but now that it's kind of out there and we can we have the ability to see how it works in practice it might be different for everybody Um, it was originally designed so that the patient can look at it get a general understanding and then we can understand what the patient is is interested in what their goals are um, because their success might look different than our success Um, and then that would help guide our conversation but to be honest with you when i've been using it i give it to them beforehand i go over with them and then if they haven't a decision then they're more than welcome
0: to 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 it with them read more about it and then give me a call later Uh, and so there there are some uh comments coming in from dr kosminski and also tracy hamilton saying you know is this a decision aid? is it available right now is it on our ask music and you know is it on the website and so at the end we will show you it is actually available right now live and we'll take you through that at the end so i just don't want to make you think i'm ignoring your questions there but one, one comment from Jay Lonsway came in saying, I've noticed over the years that patients want to hear about the options with somewhat an emphasis on their experience, and I think this sheet makes sense. Well, I mean, thanks for that support, uh, Jay. Uh, what, what did you think, Dave, when you were using it in your clinic, and where did you think it fit in in your – where do you think you'll be putting it? Is it when you meet the patient after you've done the counseling and then think about it? Give us a little perspective.
15: So you know, when I used it in the last you know week or so, I you know it, it comes as two pages. I have the the printout of it. It's easy to print out. The the front the top sheet I think is great. It's got graphical representation. I'm drawing those pictures anyway. I'm writing down those pluses and minuses regardless. Yeah. So that's saving me time, and I get to actually give them something to take with them. Yeah. I, I didn't use the 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 you know the checklist at the on the second sheet as much, only because you know unfortunately in my office we still have a you know, a lot of paperwork when you come in and a lot of these stone patients are new patients. So, you know, they've already filled out a bunch of paperwork and, you know, they also kind of, I don't have a lot of patients either who, you know, go home and say, oh, I'll think about it, call you or call your scheduler. They, you know, want something scheduled, they want it scheduled now. So at least they're able to look at something and take it home. And, you know, I haven't had anybody call me later and say, hey, I changed my mind. But, you know, that that could be an option too.
0: No, and I, and I do think, you know, I'm, I'm as guilty as as everyone in terms of doing too much ureteroscopy, And I think it's just a, a change in the generations, as we all know. I mean, the, our residents are not doing any, you know. And so I think there has to be a little bit more of an emphasis on what's right for the patient. And and so I I get the sense that maybe shockwave is going to have a little bit more of a reemergence, and rightly so. But one thing, I, I see a comment from one of our patient advocates, Margot Keelhone, saying, this is a good perspective. As a patient, I never know with your shockwave, and this is a problem about shockwave, if the stone has passed. But with urethroscopy, we always know if it's been successful. And and so, Heather, what, what's your feeling? You've had the urethroscopy, you had the shockwave. Did you have this uh, anxiety about what was shockwave going to be successful or not? And I hope uh, Heather... But- can you hear me? Yes, we can. Great.
11: Uh, I did a bit, but um, uh, but it was uh, for me worth um, giving it a, a try because there was such that was my comment to Casey Da afterwards. I was like, I felt guilty getting an IV and whatever propofol or whatever they gave me because all of a sudden I was walking out to the parking lot and so I was a little anxious about hoping the stone passed, but uh,
0: for me, it was yeah. So I think you got cut off there, but I got I got the general sentiment that for you that wasn't uh, such a problem. Right. But, uh, I, I, I I also have used this in the clinic, and I found that the the bit that I liked where the patients could focus was there's a section, John, that you you and the content team created with this. What's your most important treatment goal? And I had a patient who was trying to decide for a small kidney stone between shockwave and urethroscopy. And I had actually, you know, trying to fix my bias, I was saying, I think you should do shockwave, right? I think it's a good option. But, uh, but after going through the document, for them, the most important treatment goal was the number of effective procedures. They just wanted one and have that certainty, but they didn't mind having pain, knowing that urethroscopy was more painful. So that led that patient to decide to have urethroscopy and i felt that was really enlightening because now this patient was really confident versus well, sometimes i feel like we tell the patients what to do versus this will allow the patients come to come come to a conclusion of what's right for them tell, yeah give us your give yeah. us those perspectives as you put this together with the advocates and the team
13: yeah and I, I think We lose sight of the fact that what we say in our clinic with our white coat on or what have you has a tremendous amount of uh, force when it comes to shifting a patient's decision on what to do. And actually, Dr. Mongan in several of his studies many years ago um, identified that and basically said like, you know, the patient can have all these different things, but if the doctor that they're seeing says that they recommend this. Nine times out of ten, they're going to go with that. Um, and so, I think it's important for us to understand the power of our recommendation, and to understand that no matter how much training and how how much equipoise we think we have, we all have biases. And it's it's nice to have something that is at least potentially, you know, bias free and objective that people can can utilize to to ensure that, or at least to help with uh,
0: eliminating some of that bias. And so I, I'll, I'll have a question coming in from Mark Jamrog, uh, one of our patient advocates. Nice to nice to see you on on the webinar, Mark. Uh, and I'll direct this to you, John, since you're part of the creative team here with this document. What pre knowledge does the patient have to have in order to meaningfully complete the sheet? Yeah, it's a great question. So we
13: we try to at least. Um, provide a general understanding of, of kidney stones in, in, a, in a short amount of time. But th- essentially, they need to know that they have a kidney stone. And typically, they're being referred to a urologist for a kidney stone of some kind. Now, the hardest part in, in general that I have found, and that may be difficult with some practice um, patterns and, and the way some offices work, is knowing that they're a candidate for both. And so um, in, what I do is I, I pre-op my clinics basically, and I go through, see what medications they're on, see what the imaging, what the size is. And sometimes we'll do household units, um, to stone to distance, uh, stone to skin distance and all sorts of things just to ensure as best I can, just by, based on chart, chart checking. Um, and then ideally, in some, hopefully in the future, we're, we're able to utilize it in sort of an electronic way. Some places have, you know, PDF versions or uh, iPads and so forth. That, that would be the ideal, is you can just sort of assign it to somebody. Um, but, yeah, no, I think uh, I think it's an incredibly meaningful point because the patient does have to have some
0: knowledge to make an informed decision. Uh, thanks, John. D- Dave, do you think you would, because this is documents created for kidney stones, do you think you would use this for patients to try and make decisions if they had a ureteral stone as well? I I
15: don't see why not. You know, um, if people come in, especially unstented, um, mm-hmm. you know, but if you can see it clearly on KUB, there's no reason that they can't have you know shockwave for that. And I've done that sometimes. One barrier I have, and I think everybody else has, is availability. You know, usually patients with ureteral stones are like, you got to schedule them for tomorrow, you know, not like the end of the week, you know, when the machine comes in or next week or something like that.
0: But we do see the occasional asymptomatic ureteral stone patients. And I think those are the ones that are really suitable for shockwave from a timing perspective. Naveen, what... What your uh, your group thanking, you know, has done a nice bit of work looking at stents and shockwave lithotripsy, right, which is going to be presented at the AUA uh, on behalf of music. So congrats on that. What was the take home message from that body of work?
14: yeah there's definitely a variation in the, the way that people are using shockwave and stents um obviously some people are sort of using a lot of sense with pacing for shockwave and some people aren't and i think we need to kind of identify what are factors that people are doing for why they're placing stents are we placing and this is i think it's raising a lot of questions that we need to probe a bit more is are we placing stents because the stone is so big that we're worried about them getting steinstrasse but we know it's not going to stop them getting steinstrasse it just stops the obstruction so i think it's more again sort of understanding some of the difference in practice patterns of why people are doing things in a slightly different way, um, and so I think that's what we, we we kind of interestingly find out from that study.
0: And so uh, Mark Jamrog has uh, uh, added on to that a comment, saying that each are complicated procedures with many pros and cons, and appropriate background knowledge is critical to establish informed responses. Uh, what do you say to that, John? Are there other educational elements that you're providing to your patients on? more details on be shockwave lithotripsy or is this document you think all-encompassing
13: yeah no it's you're absolutely right and uh, thank you mark it's um uh, it's definitely not all-encompassing so it definitely requires the urologist to to sort of um, add more where they seem it appropriate. But the the idea and the goal was not to make something that was unusably long and difficult. Um, the idea was to have something that provided at least a framework to, to allow that conversation to occur and to mm-hmm. sort of see where, where the patient needed some of that, um, some mm-hmm. more assistance and more understanding. Um, and where they they kind of had a good idea of where where they where they stood.
0: We've had a a, a comment from Dr. Lynn McCormick. Uh, thanks, Lynn. Uh many patients that have had shockwave in the past prefer to have shockwave again. Is that your experience, Dave?
15: Uh, a lot of the times, just because they know what to expect. And you know, of course, this is the ones who have you know, good experience. Obviously, Chuckway still has complications, which I'm sure we'll talk about it another time. Uh, and but those who've had good experiences, minimally symptomatic, something that's not a big deal to them, yeah, typically.
0: And then Naveen uh, Casey presented the data uh, uh, where uretroscopy in Michigan, and I think this is nationwide, has higher unplanned visits, emergency departments, visits than shockwave, for sure. Uh, maybe, and, and John knows the data as well as anyone, five times much, I think, in order compared to shockwave. But the stone fee rate, if you looked at that slide, wasn't, wasn't significantly better, right? Well, what, is uretroscopy not as good as we think?
14: Yeah, I think, I think you're right. I think it's all about patient selection. I think at the end of the day we have to pick the right patients for shockwave and we'll get good results. And I think that's what we're really realizing is, is that's important, is you know, patient selection, what we do is going to be important. And again, treatment goal, you know, my, you know, my goal is to get the patient stone free, but that may not be the patient goal, you know, <laughs> they, they may just want something that's going to treat their stone. So they're not going to get an ED visit um, and they're not going to get a stent. So I think again, it's just patient selection and making sure the patient is involved in identifying what their treatment priority is, not our priority,
0: And then Heather, uh, I know the line can be, uh, you're having some difficulty with the line. I hope you're still on, but I will ask that question to you. Now that you've had shockwave, do you agree with Dr. McCormick's assessment that, you know, now if you had another stone in the future, you would prefer to have shockwave again?
5: Sure,
11: I would prefer to have shockwave again. And it's not the pain post-stent, it's the, um, yeah, it's the recovery time. So that I like that, that's in
0: the tool. Yes, and so the um, recovery. the uh, So
11: yes, I would definitely do a stand again, and that partnership between the surgeon and the patient that's so important.
0: Thank you. Uh, and Dr. Kozminski has added that looking at patients who've had both are the key, and still many of those prefer shockwave lithotripsy. Uh, yeah, I mean of course shockwave lithotripsy ha- has its fans. So uh, I will ask the controversial question of the night. Uh, <laughs> so if you were to have a stone, a, a eight millimeter interpolar stone, Dr. DiBianco, I won't give you the Hounsfield unit. It doesn't matter because in the UK, the data is the Hounsfield unit does not matter. They just shock you. So um, what would you do, uh, shockwave lithotripsy or urethroscopy?
13: Well, I have to calculate my skin to stone distance first, but I—I uh, I would give Shockwave a shot. You'll give Shockwave <laughs> a go, huh? That's, that's very kind of you. Yeah, give it a go.
14: Dr. to and if not, I'll give you a call. I think my skin to stone distance is a bit bigger than John's, but uh, <laughs> but I'm going to be honest. I think I would go for Shockwave.
0: Okay, that's two. That's two two nil, as they say in England. We've got okay, Dave Wensler. What yeah, you I think
15: do? it's going to be. I think it's going to be three nil. I would do Shockwave
10: too.
0: Okay. Well, I wanna I wanna break up the 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 drama here. I'm gonna say I will choose Urethroscopy and I'll do it myself. Me. <laughs> <laughs> so okay. Well, I think it just shows Shockwave is popular for patients. The providers all know how good it is. Um, I think the data shows we, we we're not doing as good a job that we could do. And this document is there going to help us. So they they're now gonna show us um that what the ask is that we have for you as the collaborative. So let's let's put up that slide and the ask that we have uh, for you is to start to integrate this document into your practice. And as you can see, that we as physicians can have biases. So be cognizant of those biases and try and help guide patients to choose the treatment that's right for them. And how do we do that? Uh, the the next slide will show as, as the... Uh, our how we can get this uh, document, we'll, the coordinating center will send you uh, you know, fancy paper copies of this. But if you go right now uh, onto the website, musicurology.com, and if you look at uh, uh, resources, patient educational materials, you can see there, and if you go to the kidney stone section and, and you, you look down, you can click on that and there's the, there's the decision aid. And it's just that two page document um, and I've already start, been starting using it in my clinic and it, and it's, and it's wonderful. So thank you, Dr. DiBianco and all the team that have worked on this. Congratulations. So I think, um, we have come to the end of our rock session. I want to thank Dr. Katru and Dr. Wensler for joining us and for your uh, fantastic contributions. And to Heather, all the way from Kenya, 3 a.m., you are, you win the, the medal for the, the, for the best advocate for tonight, for sure. So thank you so much. Uh, okay, thank you. So we'll 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 close that session. Right. So we go from uh, uh, from me back to me. So we'll we'll just wrap up now in terms of the uh, take home messages for the for the, our first webinar of the year. Uh, I want to first start off by thanking the kidney team, Uh, Dr. Lane and Dr. Rogers did a phenomenal uh, job in terms of presenting the data. Uh, I was taking some notes, and we, we, I mean, I, I loved the way that Dr. Uh, Brian Lane told us all about the uh, data on surveillance in the state of Michigan. Around forty percent, on average, patients are undergoing surveillance, uh, and that we saw some of the benefits of having surveillance: protecting kidney function, avoiding surgery for benign renal masses, and avoiding the morbidity of surgery. Uh, Dr. Rogers, but did show us some really uh, interesting data about the durability of surveillance, so we can do better. There are many patients who are not getting a scan or uh, in their first year, and many who are not getting in the second year. And most importantly, we heard from um, Laura and James um, uh, and Humphreys, our patient partners, on how the surveillance roadmap really helped them by providing them more information And really making this active surveillance. And so we thank um, them for taking part in their web, in the webinar today and for providing their perspectives and congratulations to them for presenting this work at the AUA patient perspectives uh, forum. The prostate team was uh, led by Dr. Crum and Dr. George, and we heard about these distinct recovery trajectories for both urinary function and sexual function after radical prostatectomy. And this is early work, but this is exciting work that I think the music team will lead. But one of the things that we found is that three month time point is critical in identifying some patients that can help get help and intervention early enough. And we were fortunate to have uh, the involvement of Mr. Rebello, our patient advocate, who also agreed that too much information is never a bad thing and is helpful for patients, especially understanding the patient perception of bother. uh, That's an important factor. And just now in the ROP session, we saw about the wide variation in the use of shockwave lithotripsy and uretroscopy across practices in Michigan. And what we're going to try and do is trying to address some of that imbalance by uh, providing the shared decision-making uh, leaflet on shockwave versus uretroscopy to help patients better uh, select the treatment that's right for them. And that shared decision aid is available right now at the musicurology.com website. Some upcoming music events. We have our uh, uh, global uh, skills workshop uh, that will be led by the kidney team. It's going to be focused on robotic partial nephrectomy, and that will be on Wednesday, 12th of April. So we'll be sending more information on that. And then at the AUA, uh, as I mentioned earlier in the, in the evening, we have 22 music presentations, and we hope to see many of many of our members at the uh, AUA reception on the Saturday evening. We couldn't put this uh, show, we couldn't show you the the data, we couldn't put any of this without the support of the coordinating center team. And so these are all the members of the coordinating center team. And I wanna take a moment to thank them all. And in particular, all the staff who've worked so hard over the last few weeks, uh, looking at the data and trying to get the right message for the benefit of the patients. So thank you uh, to our coordinating center team. I hope you've all seen that today, uh, music, uh, is a community that partners to improve patients' lives by inspiring high-quality care through data-driven best practices, education, and innovation. Thank you for uh, for spending the evening with us. Uh, I look forward to all your feedback, and I look forward to seeing many of you at the AUA and also at our next in-person meeting in June in Grand Rapids. Thank you, uh, and uh, take care.